Good morning, everybody. How's everybody on this Palm Sunday? Oh, a little blustery out there yesterday. We were out with uh, our son at a track meet, and it rained, and then it was sunny, and then it was windy, and then the thunderstorms rolled in. It was, uh, it was a, a potpourri of weather. Um, well, I heard one of the girls in one of the uh, other teams say that the weather was bipolar, and I said, no, it's like quadrupolar. It's just everything all at one time. We didn't have snow, though, so that was, uh, that was sad. We didn't have any snow. But uh, anybody have any trouble getting here this morning? I know uh, 94 coming from York Springs was closed for a time this morning, so that was a little adventure. But I'm glad to have everybody here this morning as we uh, commemorate Palm Sunday. And today is, is what uh, the many Christians call Holy Week. Um, I don't know why, because I think every week should be Holy Week, but we call this Holy Week, it's the week that starts with Jesus riding into Jerusalem in triumph, being worshipped by a loving crowd shouting, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And it ends with Jesus Christ dying on a cross that he carries through the streets as that same crowd in Jerusalem becomes hostile and shouts, crucify him. And throughout this week, specifically this morning and then on Thursday and Friday nights, we're going to travel with Jesus through his last week and we're going to watch as he worked with a singular focus. And his singular focus is to reunite humanity with God the Father. As we read through the Gospels, we can understand that this was Jesus' focus from the beginning of his ministry and even before his ministry began. Jesus was born and slept in a manger. He grew exceedingly wise. And even at the age of 12, he was sitting with people in the temple, these religious leaders, these experts in the law, and he was confounding them with his questions and with his answers to their questions in his wisdom. And then after 30 years, he began this three-year public ministry with a singular focus. And Matthew 4 uh, tells us what that focus is. And four, uh, Matthew 4 verse th- uh, 17 says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And everything that we read about, that Jesus said, and everything that he did throughout the rest of his life depended on this singular focus of repentance. This singular focus that God wanted people, that God wanted us back. The Father wants us to come back to him so that we can live in eternity with him. He wants us to come back to him so that we can live the life that we're supposed to be living before we even get to eternity. And this morning, we're going to turn to a specific moment in Jesus' ministry where we see this singular focus. And we're going to be looking this morning at Luke chapter 9. And Luke 9 is a, is a lengthy chapter. Um, and we see a whole lot of stuff happen before this moment just in this one chapter. And in the first part of the chapter, we see uh, Jesus sends out his apostles. And he sends them out two by two to do what he's been doing throughout his ministry. And it says in Luke 9, 1 to 2, he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. 
and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom and to heal. Even in this moment, Jesus is sending out other people to say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That singular focus of his ministry. And after their return, over 5,000 people gathered to hear Jesus preach, and they gathered to be healed by him. And after they'd been with Jesus for three days, he told his disciples to feed them. His disciples wanted to send them away, and Jesus said, no, you feed them. And his disciples said, well, we can't do that. We've only got five loaves of bread and a couple of fish. How are we supposed to feed all these people, Jesus? And Jesus showed them through prayer, through the blessing of God. Jesus fed 5,000 people with those same five loaves of bread and those two fish. He was still trying to get the, the disciples to get this focus. I mean, he's got to be saying, he's got to be looking at guys, I just sent you out. You just cast out demons. You came and told me how great it was. Yay, we cast out demons. We healed people. We preached. People started to believe. This is great. Why didn't you believe that you could do what I said you could do to feed the crowd with these five loaves and two fishes? Where is your focus? And just after this, Jesus asks his disciples a crucial question. He says, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. Then others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And at that point, we think Peter's got it. Peter's got that singular focus. Peter knows what's going on. And upon, Jesus, uh, upon hearing uh, Peter's answer, Jesus told his disciples that he was about to suffer and to die and that he was going to rise again on the third day. And Peter, who we think just got it, got angry with Jesus. And he rebuked him saying, you can't talk that way. You're not supposed to die. You're supposed to lead us into this battle with the Romans. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This man who had just called Jesus the Christ Jesus now says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, your focus is all wrong. Yes, you believe that I am the Christ, but you have a really wrong idea of what the Christ is going to be. You don't have your focus on God. But that didn't stop Jesus from taking Peter along with him up this mountain to pray. Jesus took Peter, James, and John. He went up in this mountain. They were going to pray together. He left the rest of the disciples behind. And in Luke chapter 9, verses 29 to 31, we see, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So there's Moses and Elijah come down from God. 
to help Jesus maintain and sharpen the focus of what he was about to do. And of course, Peter, James, and John saw this, and they said, well, we should stay up on this mountain forever. And again, Jesus said, where's your focus? That's not what I'm here to do. I'm not here to stay on this mountain with you for the rest of our lives. I'm here to do something important. So they go back down the mountain and Jesus encounters a man and his son. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out as he approached, right after he had been transfigured, right after his face had changed and his clothes had changed. Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And notice this question of Jesus here. How long am I to be with you and to bear with you? My disciples, it is only a few days since you went out into the world and cast out demons. You told me it happened. You told me about it. Why couldn't you cast out this one? Where is your focus? What are you doing? And in the very next moment, we read that they were all marveling about these things. And Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men but they did not understand this saying. Have you ever had somebody look at you and say, let these words sink into your ears, husbands? Are you listening? Just put down the phone. Look at me. Look me in the eye. I'm about to say something important. Teachers, how many times do we say those things? And Jesus is here. Guys, up here, all eyes, right here, on me. Hey, right here. Stop looking down. Stop looking around. Stop talking to your neighbor. Stop drawing on your notebooks. Look at me. I'm about to say something important. And I do this in my class sometimes. I look at them sometimes. I say, look at me, because if you learn nothing else from this lesson today, you need to learn this one thing. Doesn't work for me, but... I'm okay with that because it didn't really work for Jesus either. He says, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, but they did not understand this saying. And what was their response right after Jesus said this? They didn't understand it. So obviously the discussion had to turn our argument grows among them as to which one was the greatest. Jesus, we don't understand what you're saying, but we're going to talk about this over here. Which one of us is the greatest? Which one of us is going to sit next to Jesus in heaven? Which one of us is going to be the best? And can you imagine Jesus standing there listening to this argument? 
right after he says, I'm going to die. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. You'd be like, seriously? I just told you I'm going to die, and I told you I'm going to rise again on the third day, and you want to argue about which one of you is the greatest? All throughout this chapter, this particular chapter, we see the focus of Jesus, and we see the extreme lack of focus of his disciples. They don't get it. They don't understand. They've got these preconceived ideas of who Jesus is supposed to be, of what Messiah is supposed to be, and Jesus is talking crazy. He's not saying anything that makes any sense to them. And so they're, in some cases, just ignoring what he says, or he, they're just forgetting it because it doesn't make sense to them. But we do see the this sharp focus of Jesus on what's about to happen. And in Luke 9.51, we read, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. It is from this moment on that Jesus focuses on what's next. Jesus focuses on where he's going and what's going to happen to him. And this is only chapter 9 in Luke. Jesus doesn't actually ride into Jerusalem until chapter 19, somewhere in the middle. There's a lot going on. Some historians believe it could have been up to a year from the time that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem to the time that he actually went to Jerusalem. But everything we read from chapters 10 on show us the focus of Jesus as he's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. In chapter 10, he sends out more disciples to preach and to heal. He wants them to be ready for when he's gone. He also told the parable of the Good Samaritan, talking about how we're supposed to treat our neighbors and who our neighbors were. In chapter 11, he teaches his disciples how to pray. And he pronounces woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus tells his disciples these religious leaders aren't doing the will of God. You need to pray and learn the will of God. Chapter 12 shows Jesus teaching, do not be anxious about anything. And they're going to have a lot to be anxious about about a week after Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Chapter 12 also tells the disciples that they have to be ready for what's coming. Chapters 13 and 14, Jesus uses parables and continues healing people. And at the end of chapter 14, Jesus finally gets to the point where he starts telling his disciples, this is what it truly means to follow me. This is the cost of being my disciple. You've got to turn your back on everything and follow me. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three different parables, and all three of the parables have the same message. He tells the parable of the lost coin, he tells the parable of the lost sheep, and he tells the parable of the, the lost son, the prodigal son. And all three of these parables say the same thing, that God is seeking to save us. God is looking for us. And when he finds us, 
and we repent and we become his children, there is celebration like you have never seen before. That's how happy God is when somebody turns back to him and becomes his son or his daughter. Jesus speaks in Luke 16 more specifically about the Jewish people. And he talks about the Pharisees and the law and the kingdom and the consequences of Jews ignoring the law and the prophets. And in uh, Luke 17, he teaches again and he heals again. Only this time his teaching is about the upcoming kingdom. He's starting to tell them more and more about what's going to happen after he dies, after he rises again. And in Luke 18, among his teaching and his healing, Jesus foretells his death in more graphic detail than he has up to this point in Luke chapter 17, verses 31 to 33. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus just telling his disciples that he's about to be handed over obviously has not been enough. Watch for what happens, my disciples. I'm going to be turned over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be beat. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be flogged. And they are going to kill me. And on the third day, I'm going to rise. But even then, the very next verse we read, but they understood none of these things. They still had no focus. Finally, we get to Luke chapter 19, which starts with Jesus having supper with a short man named Zacchaeus. And if we've been in church for a while, we all know Zacchaeus, the wee man that climbed a tree just so he could see Jesus. And Jesus invited himself over for a meal at Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree, for I must dine with you today. And Jesus goes and he dines with Zacchaeus. Now Zacchaeus was a bad, bad man. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and he was a Jew. He had spent his entire life cheating his own people out of money. Because you see, the Romans required that the Jews collect a tax. But they didn't say anything about not being able to collect a little bit extra to shove into your own pocket. And that's exactly what Zacchaeus did. He would collect the tax and then he would overtax these people again and again and again throughout his entire life. And even the people, when they found that Jesus was going to dine with him, said, look at this guy. He's going to eat with a chief tax collector. I don't know if you've ever seen like any of the movies where people like spit on the ground when they say something, but I can imagine that every time somebody said something about a tax collector, it was like, he's a chief tax collector. You ever see that in a movie? Yeah. Chief tax collector. 
How could he possibly be going and eating with that person? But it was during this visit that Zacchaeus listened to Jesus. And Zacchaeus repented of his sin. Not only did he repent of his sin, not only did he ask forgiveness of God for the things that he'd done, he also told Jesus, I promise I will give back four times the amount that I have stolen from people. And on top of that, I'm going to give all the rest of my money to the poor and to the needy. That is repentance. Not just, I'm sorry, God, but I'm sorry, God, and I change my life and I make restoration for the things that I've done wrong to people, if it's at all possible. And look at what Jesus says in verses 9 and 10. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus' singular focus. After one more parable, we finally see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a young donkey, on a colt. Just as the prophecy had foretold in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the people saw Jesus riding into Jerusalem on this colt. And this is the moment that the Jewish people have been waiting for for over 400 years after all of the oppression they've gone through, all of the slavery they've gone through, they're looking for Messiah, the King, to come and save them. And they see Jesus riding in, just as the prophet said, and they shouted. They shouted. They rejoiced greatly. They said, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! We're saved! And they waved these palm branches that they had cut from the trees and they laid them on the ground on Jesus' path. And this is why the Jewish leaders were so anxious to shut the crowd down. Not just because they were loud. Not just because they were making a spectacle of themselves. In ancient Rome, there was a figure called Victoria who was the god or goddess of victory. She symbolized Rome's right to rule, and Rome was ruling at this time. And her symbol of triumph, her symbol of victory, was the palm branch. Jerusalem was under Roman rule. If Roman soldiers started hearing the crowd, and they came and they saw palm branches being waved and people yelling at this Jew that he was going to save them. That's what Hosanna means, save us. He was going to save them and they're laying these palm branches out. They would have immediately assumed an uprising was about to happen. They would immediately assume that violence was getting ready to start. And the Jewish leaders didn't want an uprising. The Jewish leaders didn't want violence because they were quite happy with the way that they were living. 
They were quite happy to be able to overtax the Jews because the taxpayers were hired by the religious leaders and the religious leaders would get some back from the tax collectors from everything that they took. Not to mention the money that they used as their own private piggy bank from the money in the temple. They were really happy. They were sitting fat. But that wasn't even the biggest problem. The Jewish leaders didn't want someone walking around saying that he was the Messiah. Because Messiah would be the one with the power and the influence and they wouldn't have any anymore. The religious leaders were afraid of Jesus because he represented the destruction of their way of life. So they wanted him shut up. They wanted the crowd shut down. And it was from that moment on that the Jewish leaders started plotting how they were going to kill Jesus. It used to be they just wanted to arrest him. They just wanted to throw him in prison. Now he's got to die. We know what Palm Sunday means to us. We know because we've had 2,000 years of history showing us that Palm Sunday is about Jesus dying so that we might be saved. Jesus dying and rising again so that we might defeat death. But there were a lot of people that didn't see it that way in 30 A.D., they wanted to destroy Jesus. So while the crowd was celebrating, behind the scenes, all of this plotting was happening. And we've seen Jesus focusing on his arrival all throughout this book of Luke. When he rides into Jerusalem, he is so overwhelmed with emotion that he cries. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus wasn't coming to bring earthly peace. Jesus wasn't coming to destroy the Romans. Jesus wasn't coming to rescue the Jews from physical slavery. He was coming to save their souls. And they didn't understand it. And Jesus cries because he knows what's going to happen because these people are going to continue to want somebody to overthrow the Romans. And Jesus says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not understand who Messiah is is you did not understand why Messiah has come. You're going to continue to try to use earthly means to destroy an earthly enemy, and it's not going to happen. And a lot of you are going to die, including your children. 
And this is exactly what happened in 70 AD. Jerusalem was conquered. It was burned to the ground. The people believed Jesus' entry into Jerusalem that day was triumphal because they expected, them, expected him to save them from Rome. But Jesus' triumph was not to be salvation from Rome. It was to be salvation from hell. It was to be salvation from eternal death. And the people just couldn't understand it. And if we're honest with ourselves today, sometimes we don't understand it. How can this happen? How could Jesus dying for our sins be enough? We need to find a singular focus. We need to focus on who God the Father is. We need to focus on the fact that God doesn't want any of us to perish. He wants all of us to have eternal life, and he has provided a way. He has provided the only way back to him. And that way came through the gates of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Stayed in Jerusalem for that week and was spit upon and ridiculed. He was flogged and he was killed. That is the way that God provides for our salvation. This week we remember Jesus' final acts among his disciples. We remember that he was abandoned by them in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was arrested. We remember his ultimate sacrifice on the cross. And as we meet together this week on Thursday and Friday evenings, let us find a singular focus. Let us understand what Jesus meant when he said, I am going to be delivered into the hands of men and I'm going to die, but on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And let us contemplate the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let us think about what it truly means to give up everything Jesus said, you've got to be willing to give up mother and father and child and husband and wife and house and everything. And you've got to be willing to pick up a cross and follow me to death. If that's what God calls you to do. Let us contemplate this week. Are we ready to put that singular focus on Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for sending your Son. We thank you for making him the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you for his singular focus, his determination to not let anything stop him from becoming the perfect sacrifice for our sins. 
Thank you for giving us that way back to you. Thank you for giving us that way to eternal life upon his resurrection. Father, open our minds, open our hearts. Help us to understand and give us the singular focus that Jesus had to follow him, even if it means our death. And give us that singular focus for those in our community who are lost. And let us be of the same mind as Jesus, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Let us not worry about reputation. Let us not worry about what people say about us or what they think about us. Let us share the gospel boldly and without apology. Give us the strength and the courage to preach Jesus Christ to a lost world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to commemorate communion. Communion was established on uh, what would be this Thursday. Uh, it is called Maundy Thursday. Maundy means command. And this was a commandment that Jesus gave that we would celebrate his death. That we would remember why he died. And he gave us symbols. He gave us bread and he gave us wine. And he told us that the bread is symbolic of his body, which was going to be broken for us the very next morning. And he said the wine is a symbol of his blood. And we read throughout the, New or the Old Testament that blood is a sign of commitment. It is a sign of a new covenant. And Jesus' blood was going to be the new covenant that would bring us to faith in, G in, in God. As we celebrate, as we commemorate communion this morning, let us truly remember what it is that Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Let us remember what his body went through. Let us remember the blood that he shed. As we prepare this morning, we're going to give you a couple of minutes to pray by yourself. On the night before he died, Jesus gathered with his disciples in an upper room and they ate a last supper. And during supper, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he blessed it, and he passed it around to his disciples and said, Take and eat this. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we remember Jesus Christ and his work this morning, let us remember that he did not come to do what is easy. He came to do for us what we would consider impossible. He allowed his body to be broken for us. The body of Christ.
After supper, Jesus took the wine and he blessed it as well. And then he passed it around to his disciples and said, take this all of you and drink it. This wine represents the new covenant in my blood. This is the blood that Jesus would pour out on the day that he was crucified. And it is through his blood that we find salvation. Jesus said, drink this in remembrance of me. Blood of Christ. The work on earth is not done. And the spirit is still here. And if you want proof of that, I'm getting ready to leave here this morning and attend the baptism of a girl who once said that God didn't exist. And over the months that she attended here and over the months that she's attended her family's church, the Holy Spirit has worked in and through her and in and through the people here and that the people in her church. And she made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. And today, I get to witness her baptism. Don't tell me that God is not powerful. Go forth and share the gospel because you don't know who God is working on right now. God bless you this week.